Well, we're going to get into it here in just a minute. There's a couple things I should remind you. One, of course, is the annual meeting next week, and I hope that you're here. And if you have any good questions, bring those with you. And uh, we are just praising God for what He's doing. Um, uh, some of you have asked about uh, when are we moving back, and uh, there's three things that need to happen. You could write these down, or you'll probably remember them. Ready? Number one, we need to finish the construction. You laugh like, well, of course. The second is we need to get the approval of the city. That might take about a month, they said, after the construction is finished, for them to look things over and say, you forgot this or how come that or on and on and on. And then the third is we need to move. Now, I have I've promised that that third one will be a lot faster than the other two. So you'll be praying for the construction, the approval for the city, then our move, and we'll be back there as quick as we can. We're projecting at this point a date in September. So um, when you ask when is it going to be, Stay patient, stay with me, stay with me. We haven't come this far to quit, have we? Okay. Um, it'll be after the first of the month, somebody said. I just don't know which month. <laughs> okay. Okay, the third is, if you thought, if, okay, get ready for this. You know, the school that's here that we have shared this campus with, every year has worked on doing, during the summer, does upgrades to the campus to try to improve things. And we rock along with them. We work with them to make it happen. So last summer, for instance, they had the gym out of commission for a period of time. This summer, they're going to be renewing and uh, uh, upgrading the bathrooms that are in the gym, the men's and the women's. So if that's, your regular, if that's on your regular pattern, today's the last day that those are going to be available for a while. No, no, there's other restrooms, so you just need to find a new source, okay? If you go out these doors and turn right, there's four or five bathrooms up this way, and there's a couple restrooms over in our building in any of the doors, uh, okay? So you might want to learn a new pattern today, is what I'm saying. Since you still have the other ones, you just, I just wanted you to know in advance. All right, let's get into uh, pursuing uh, the pursuit of chasing God's heart. Somebody said, if it doesn't kill you, it will... Uh -huh, don't bet on it. <laughs> okay, don't bet on it. I mean, let's look at this. We've been looking at, at David, who's called, even as a young person, a man after God's own heart. And David was anointed by the prophet Samuel at God's direction and then given God's promise. You will be the next king of Israel. And then he was filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment. It said it rushed upon him. And uh, it wasn't long after that that he was called on. Uh, he was just on a mission of mercy to take some uh, refreshments to his bro three brothers that were in the army to see how things were going and head back home. In the process, he ended up volunteering to take on the Philistine champion Goliath and ended up killing him with Goliath's own sword. Now, it would have seemed, if you had to guess, that from that moment on, I mean, the, David has stepped onto the national stage. Everybody is knowing about him and talking about him, and his trajectory would just be up, up, up uh, to become the king. But that's not how David's life went. And that's not how, if you studied the life of Jesus, that's not how his life went either. When he was alive, and that's probably not how your life has gone or is going. I mean, aren't you kind of glad that God doesn't show you the whole future right out in front of you? Say, do you know what's going to happen to you next week? You know, he doesn't do that. He doesn't give that to us. I've, I've thought even this year, I thought it would be kind of nice to know the actual date of three different grandkids being born and when the church is going to, when we're going to get to move. If those, if I could get those on my calendar, all the rest of the planning would be so much easier. But God doesn't seem to want to provide them just like that. He gives me one day at a time, says, just trust me, just walk with me, do what I'm asking you to do today. And he gives us the grace and the strength to deal with today. And in the process, God uses people and circumstances and pressures and opposition to prune us 
and to strengthen us and to shape us and to mold us into the image of his son. We are in the process of becoming like Jesus Christ. And we do that by becoming fully devoted followers of Christ, to watch Christ, to listen to Christ, to think about Christ, to emulate Christ, and to grow in that pursuit of chasing after the heart of God, regardless of the obstacles we trip over along the way. In fact, Hebrews 2.10 says, Jesus Christ was made perfect through what he suffered. Go, wait a minute, I thought Jesus always was perfect. Well, yes, he was perfect always in the sense that he was sinless. What it's talking about in Hebrews, Jesus was made perfect through suffering, is that... <clears throat> He was perfect like it was, he was made complete. He was matured to perfection through his suffering. He was tested, and he passed the test. David was also gifted and anointed and filled with God's Holy Spirit and given God's promise, and then he had a little bit of success, and then he was tested. And what David found, which is also often true in our lives as well, is if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you something, it might make you bitter if your eyes are on yourself. It might make you better. It might make you stronger. It might make you more in love with God. God is in that process of, of pruning off of our lives the things that would keep us from fully following him, of taking away the crutches that we lean on instead of just trusting him. And God saw that David had a heart that was in pursuit of God, but that he was also young and relatively inexperienced, and God was getting David ready to be the king to lead God's people. God's getting you ready for something, too. And the story of David and Goliath that we looked at last week takes up all of chapter 17 in 1 Samuel. And the next portion of David's life took about 10 or 12 years, and it's actually the rest of the book of Samuel, about 14 more chapters. We do know that David was 30 years old when he became king over Israel, and he died at age 70. So this period of David's life, from being thrust into national prominence uh, by killing the giant until he became king a decade or so later, was a time of uh, serving others and uh, establishing relationships and having some successes, and then defeats. Lots and lots of waiting and waiting and waiting and suffering losses and running for his life since his father-in-law, who also happened to be the king of the land, was literally trying to kill him for most of that period of time. So it put a certain pressure on his 20s. I mean, God had given him an anointing and a promise, and then came the test, a series of tests, really, that were asking the question, does David really love God with all his heart? Does David really trust God with all his heart? Does he trust God even when the promises seem miles and miles and miles away from being fulfilled? Maybe we're being tested the same way. Sometimes David did great. Other times David seemed very human. Fatigue was often a factor. Fear, there was lots of fear in David's life. It wasn't just about trying harder. God was pruning David and testing him and preparing him to serve in a greater way. Jesus had the same pattern. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, so hold your space there in, in 1 Samuel, but flip over to Philippians 2. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be clutched. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. Jesus Christ understands our struggles. 
He rested in God, and he himself is our refuge. See, you and I have the same pattern. We have these hopes for some event, for some brighter future. We have these promises from God that we have read and claimed. We've had some successes, and then then we wait, and we wonder, and we get discouraged or depressed or even sink into despair. David did, and sometimes we're tempted even to question God or to doubt God. Welcome to the walk of a believer. I want you to see that it's a well-worn path. Jesus was on that path. David was on that path. Many others. I mean, even last days of his minutes of his life, Jesus said to God, if there's some other way than your way, I want to go that way. Not my will, but yours be done. There was this constant realigning of self to fit in with God's will. And it's a walk of trust and a walk of waiting and a walk of patience and of keeping the right perspective. See, God is always at work in this world. He's always at work in our lives. And sometimes we're killing the giant and and becoming the hero, but most days are just ordinary, mundane, just so average Mondays or Tuesdays or Wednesdays. And then there's those days that really, I mean, stretch our our faith and test our limits and force us to choose. Can I really trust God with, with my whole life? So let's look at how God prepared David to be the king of Israel and to lead God's people. I mean, it first looked like David was just stepping onto the big stage, and although he was young, he was ready for this big promotion. But David was shaped by key relationships. Well, you see, the first thing that happened after he <laughs> killed, the Goliath, uh, killed Goliath was King Saul had to ask somebody near him, who is that guy? And so he got known by King Saul, and David was trying to honor Saul and to serve Saul. So even though his father had said, go check on your brothers and come home and bring me a report, he never made it back home. In 1 Samuel 18, verse 2, it says, Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And then verse 5, and David went out and was successful whenever, wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over, set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So David spent a significant portion of his time and effort trying to please the king, trying to serve King Saul. David also, besides honoring the king, God gave David a best friend for life in Saul's son, Jonathan. Verse 1, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan was the king's son. He was the heir apparent to the throne. But look at verse 3. This is only because of the grace of God. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe he had on, and he gave it to David and his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. He basically said, you're the man. And he gifted him uh, all of the things that would, would, would show that he was a warrior and said, I want to be friends with you. And the two of them were friends until they were parted by Jonathan's death. God gave David a wife who really loved him. In verse 20, it says, Now Saul's daughter Michael loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, Let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. Do you know, it it kind of jumps out when it says, Michael loved David. It's actually the only place in the Bible, other than in Song of Solomon, where it talks about a woman loving a man. 
I know there were other loving women and women who served and women who, who had compassion and love, and it wasn't expressed, but this one actually is in here twice. Look at verse 27. Saul gave his daughter Michael for a wife, but when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. It's a blessing when you have a wife that really loves you. This one got away from David later. God gave David also success in battles and great popularity with all the people. It says in verse 5, he went out and he was successful wherever Saul sent him. And then verse 6, as they were coming home from returning from the battles, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out from all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands. David his tens of thousands. And Saul was angry when he heard this. And the saying displeased him, and he said, they've ascribed to David 10,000, and to me they've ascribed thousands. And what more can he have except the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Saul was afraid of David, verse 12, because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. So Saul removed David from his presence. God began to do his pruning work after here David had been established in a relationship with the king and with the king's son, and he married the king's daughter, and everybody was showing him, uh, uh, showering him with accolades and adulation. And God begins this process by turning King Saul's heart against David out of envy and fear of his own. God's doing a work in David's life, and that involves some testing and some pruning, some trimming away, some removal of anything or anyone that might get between David and his love for God. People that were good in David's life, but you didn't realize, maybe I am depending on them more than on God. And David began to suffer loss after loss and have long periods of waiting and running and hiding, and the losses took their toll on David. I mean, let's look at his downward spiral. First off, he lost his job because he worked for the king. But numerous times in Scripture, it says he was playing his harp or something to bring music to the king to soothe his, his troubled soul, and King Saul would pick up his spear and attempt to pin David to the wall. And then it became known that Saul was trying to kill him, and David was chased out of the royal residence, out of his own home. He was chased out of town. He became a man on the run for about a decade. And all the people loved David, but they also knew he was a wanted man and that the king was trying to kill him. And they knew that helping him could bring disastrous repercussions. Well, then David also lost his wife, Michael. She defended David and helped him escape, but their marriage suffered in the process. In 1 Samuel 19, 11, it says, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Now, I think she gave advice dealing with fear, and I want him to be safe. And there's people outside who are watching. I think David could have responded to say, I was given a promise by God, and to, I was going to be the next king, and he will protect me. He didn't say that. Instead, he zipped out the window, and he ran. But where do you go? You can't go back to Bethlehem. 
You can't go to all the other places you've regularly been. So he ran to Ramah where the prophet Samuel lived. And he told Samuel about King Saul trying to kill him. And so Samuel had David live with him for a while because Samuel was kind of like a mentor and a, a counselor to him. While he's gone, we learn in 1 Samuel 25 that Saul had given Michael, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galam. So David and Michael did not survive their relationship. Then he lost his family home. David's family was in danger, and I don't know if you remember, there was one little phrase in there that when Jesse sent David to check on his brothers fighting in the army, that says Jesse was very, uh, very old. And later in the story, we learn here that they had to leave Bethlehem out of concern for their safety. And then in 1 Samuel 22, it says, David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. Moab is across the Jordan River. They are enemies of Israel. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. David knew what God was going to do for him, but it just was taking so long, and he was discouraged, and he was wondering, and his faith seems to be flagging. And so he takes his parents, even though they are... Uh, well along in years and uh, aged and moves them uh, to another country. So you know that he was dealing with a certain amount of fear and that the threat was real. God continued his, his pruning process. Next, he lost his counselor. The prophet Samuel died. 1 Samuel 25, 1 says, Samuel died and all Israel assembled and mourned for him and they buried him in his house in Ramah. And so he's lost his, uh, the king's trust. He has lost his job with the king. He's lost his wife. He's lost uh, his, his parents' home, and they've had to move. He's lost his counselor. Then he lost contact with his closest friend, Jonathan. Jonathan loves and supports David, but he can't stop his father's angry pursuit. So he and David are separated by distance and by the conflict. In 1 Samuel 19, it says, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David if given a chance. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, is seeking to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place. Hide yourself. The next chapter, in chapter 20, he said, they met and they realized we're, we're, not, we're going separate ways. God is pulling us apart, and the, this crisis with this King Saul is separating us. And it says, they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. I mean, in the course of running away from King Saul, there were people out there trying to kill him. And David didn't always make the right decisions. He said goodbye to Jonathan, but then he ran for his life. And he has no food, has no money, has no weapons. And he comes to this little town called Nob, where there was a, a bunch of priests or a gaggle of priests, or a pride of priests. I don't know, what do you call them when you have a group, I guess? A group of priests. Uh, Levitical priests were there, and he needed food, and he needed a weapon. So he, he told a little white lie. He said, the king has sent me on an urgent secret mission. <laughs> David was the king's urgent mission. And so he said, you know, got away without any food. Do you have any food? And they said, well, we just have the, the holy showbread here. He said, well, could you give some of that to me? And they actually did. And then they, he said, do you have any weapons? They said, we only have one sword, and that's the sword of Goliath. It was a sword that David had used. It would be a, a triple X 
a large sword. I mean, nobody would use this thing except somebody Goliath's size. And uh, so here's David trying to wield this sword. Probably it looked more like a, a staff. Um, and uh, then he got out of there. Well, David obviously was letting fear control his heart instead of God's Spirit at those moments when he lied. Because God's Spirit would never guide him to lie. And he took Goliath's sword and he ran to hide in the weirdest place. I mean, it makes no sense. He took Goliath's sword and he ran to hide in Goliath's hometown of Gath. Well, they recognized him in Gath. And they made plans to get even. And in 1 Samuel 21, it says... David took these words to heart. He must have overheard them talking about what they were going to do to him. And now he's got himself captured inside their city. And he's afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them. He pretended to be insane in their hands. He made marks on the doors of the gate with his teeth and let his spittle run down his beard. How low can you go? I mean, he's hiding in the camp of the enemy? It would have been scarier than a day of shopping at Target. Okay, if you didn't listen to the news yesterday, none of the registers would work properly in any target. It was chaos. Okay, I'm sorry. Never mind. Here we see David has sunk so low that he's even lost his own respect, and he's feigning insanity. And somehow David got out of there with his life. I'm guessing the, uh, God's Holy Spirit was working overtime. But actually, he recorded part of it in Psalm 56. It says this was a psalm when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Psalm 56, David wrote, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker opposes me, oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. Well, he hadn't when he was in the village of Nob, and he hadn't when he ran to Gath, but maybe when they put him in some kind of confinement in Gath, when I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And the answer when you're in the flesh is, they could kill me. And the answer when you're thinking in God's spirit is, they might kill my body, they cannot kill my soul. In verse 11, he says, In God I trust, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Well, if you read it in 1 Samuel, the scribe understated it, I think. He says, David departed there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. So he somehow managed to get himself free from Gath and raced out of there, ran out to the wilderness to this cave. And then at verse 2, everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. I think that's what hell is like. But I'm, you know what I'm saying is everybody who's in distress, everybody who's in debt, everybody who has an issue, everybody who's on the run or should be in prison gathered with David. He became commander over them, and there were about 400 men. Oh, my goodness. So what does David do? He finally runs and hides in a cave in the wilderness. He's at the end of his resourcefulness. He's at the end of his strength. He's at the end of his own efforts. He's end of thinking that he can do it all on his own, and he's exactly where God wants him to be. He's depending on no one and nothing except God alone. He has no security. He has no food. He has no companion that he can really talk to. He has uh, no promise. He's two quarts low on hope. And David cries out for God to deliver him. Now, right at that moment, 
it looked like he was at the end. Pastor Chuck Swindoll was writing about this, and he says, when God brings us to nothing, he is rerouting your life. He's not ending it. If you're at that point today, then take hope. If you say, I'm at the end. No, God is rerouting your life. In fact, in Psalm 142, David talked about this. He said, when I, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. And the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there's no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they're too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me. You will deal bountifully with me. So David's surrounded by these 400 men who are distressed. It ends up swelling up to 600, including David's family. And he's in the cave. So it must have, must have been quite a gathering. They ended up spending their time protecting upstanding citizens and having quite a time of that. But while he's in the cave, he wrote Psalm 57. He says, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful, for you in my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. He says there's a series of storms, of destructive storms that have been passing by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send me from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. He ends the psalm by saying, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. You know, in conclusion, you might be thinking, if, if I sum this up, you're saying life is hard, but God will do something in hard times, so just try harder and do better and don't give up. Well, that's not quite it. At least that's not the only part of the equation because what we see is it's not just our efforts. God has given us his grace. We can't do it on our own. We can't try hard enough to, on our own. We need God's Holy Spirit in our life and in our hearts, guiding us and correcting us and protecting us. And we can choose to keep our hearts steadfast and focused on pursuing God, despite the circumstances. See, thankfully, God sent Jesus, who did the impossible. He covered our sin with his innocent blood, which means when our life is hard and we are failing because we come up short or because we sin because we're human, we can be encouraged that God is completing something in us not because of us, but because of His grace. God's goodness and a grace are available to you. His grace will see you all the way through. So are you on the run trying to avoid some death trap of one sort or another? Are you inadvertently hiding in the home of the enemy? Have you reached rock bottom? Are you looking for a lonely cave or a place to hide? Then you're in good company because David's been there in his running as a man after God's own heart. God was actually pursuing him, and he didn't know it. See, the good news is God is present when you reach that point of rock bottom. If God was doing this kind of work in David, kind of like somebody called it descending into greatness, if God was in Christ emptying himself, humbling himself even to the point of death, then you could see that God uses a pruning process to remove the crutches in our life so that we depend totally on God. So if you're in that moment, then choose to lean on the Lord. And just trust him. 
Because right after this passage we read in Philippians where Jesus uh, allowed himself to come into this world and to be humbled and be a servant and then to die a death on the cross, and then he was raised to have the name above all other names. Then Paul says, therefore, verse 12, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. To work out your salvation, God's given you the salvation. To ask the, what's the, so what? What does that mean? How do I change my life now to live in a way that is pursuing the heart of God? Because if it doesn't kill you, it can make you bitter. If you keep your eyes on yourself and on your problems and on your losses, or it can make you better if you put your focus on the Lord and on his goodness and on his promises to you. And Paul goes on to say in Galatians, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So don't give up. I mean, if it doesn't kill you, it could make you better or stronger. It could make you more like Jesus. It could make you into a person who is chasing God's own heart. I want to close with a prayer by A.W. Tozer. It's from his book, The Pursuit of God. Let's pray. Father, I want to know you, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from you the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self so that you may enter and dwell there without a rival. Then you will make the place of your feet glorious. Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it, for you yourself will be the light of it, and there will be no night there. In Jesus' name, amen.